Good morning. Just a little bit of housekeeping. We'll be gone for two Sundays, my family and I, after today. So when we get back, we will continue the series on the DNA of the church. And after that, we're going into Genesis. So uh, just something to be aware of and be praying about. Keep on your radar. Um, with that said, thank you for a couple weeks break, so appreciate that. Uh, but we'll, we'll, uh, we'll be back in a few weeks. So today, uh, who is head of the church? We're going to look at Titus 1, 5 through 9. Turn there with me or scroll to it. Titus, Titus. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. The Apostle Paul writes, This is why I left you in Crete. Ah, there we go. On the screen. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, a one-woman man, with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able both to encourage with sound doctrine, sound teaching, and to refute those who contradict it. Uh, Heavenly Father, God, Lord, we, we seek your word today to understand, Lord, uh, what, what an elder should be, who an elder should be, what is their role in ministry. God, as we, as we begin uh, a few sermons on being an elder, Lord, we pray for your wisdom and your guidance, Lord, your spirit to give us understanding, and, and if there is anything that we personally uh, take issue with about that, Lord, Lord, that we would, we would take that to you and that we would submit to your word, God, and uh, that you would graciously uh, help us do that. So, Lord, we ask uh, for your spirit today to help us. Uh, glorify Christ and give us understanding of the under-shepherds of the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a recall, last time, two weeks ago, we looked at the qualifications for a deacon and what their role is. If you recall, I made an argument that deacons are assistants to the elders, which means the role of a deacon is to help minister the various needs of the church so that the elders can attend to the ministry that they're called to. One of the primary reasons I, I made that argument or one of the primary reasons I said that I believe that the precise tasks of a deacon are left out of the scriptures so what their roles are supposed to be, the reason we don't see that is because 
a deacon is supposed to fulfill whichever specific needs their local church has. So depending on the need, depends on the work, depends on the service for the deacon. And that will fluctuate at every different church. I also stated that the elders at Cornerstone do not see that the New Testament forbids women to be deacons. And for a longer explanation, I'll refer you back to that sermon a few weeks ago, but I'm going to cut it off there. As for today, I know that I said I was going to preach on who can be an elder, specifically in regard to genders this week, but I'm actually going to reserve that for when I return in a few weeks. So that'll be the first sermon I pick up on. Today, I want to cover a few important issues pertaining to the office of an elder, such as God's purpose and design for appointing elders, what an elder is, what are they supposed to do, and I also want to make it abundantly clear who is in charge of the local church. Point number one. Every church should appoint elders to preserve the apostolic teachings. For a little context, it would would be good to have some clarity as to why the Apostle Paul here wrote to Titus and told him to appoint elders in every local church, in every town. I think the primary reason is because the apostolic ministry was swiftly coming to an end. And by that, I mean the apostles, they're getting old, right? Some have already been martyred. Others are in prison. Others will be going to prison and being exiled. And it's only a matter of time until those with the, who are apostles that carry that apostolic authority no longer exist. Mainly because there's not going to be any apostles left once they all die. Therefore, part of the apostolic ministry before that happens is to make sure that the local churches in first century are are appointing faithful men who would preserve the apostolic teachings, i.e. the New Testament. In other words, how are we going to make sure what Christ taught us as apostles is still taught as the word of God? Appoint elders. Now, when we look across the New Testament, we see many churches had already either appointed elders or did so when instructed to. Acts 14, 21 through 23, Luke writes, They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Akinium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Verse 23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. In Acts 15, at the Jerusalem council, we see the Jerusalem church already had elders who met with the apostles to decide and make policy for the churches regarding Gentile circumcision. Verse 22, then the apostles and elders 
with the whole church, decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. When with them, they sent the following letter, the apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia. In Acts 20, verse 17, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. The church in Ephesus already had elders, and so did the church in Philippi. If you remember Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus, in Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. With the preservation of the apostolic teachings being a primary goal, Paul then writes to Titus, whose ministry is in Crete, and says, in order for those churches to become and remain orderly, do the same as all the other churches. Appoint elders in every town. Verse 5. But Titus, the apostle Paul would say, it is vitally important to whom you appoint to that role. Point two, an elder is. Starting in verse six. So in verse five, he says appoint elders. Now in verse six, he says, and this is what an elder should be. Here's the qualifications. An elder must be blameless, a one-woman man with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. An overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught, so that he will be able to both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. Now, Now the word elder itself can create a bit of confusion, right? Especially if you aren't used to hearing that term in the context of a local church. As some of us hear elder and we, and we think of an older person like when our parents told us when we were children, obey and respect your elders. And that is good and true for the children, by the way. Biblically speaking, it can meet an older person. However, it can also be used to designate one as an official or an officer. And in the context of who is qualified to serve the church as an elder, when we look at the qualifications here, and in Timothy, Peter, the age of the man is never part of that criteria. In fact, the only requirement uh, that's temporal or regarding a time component for an elder is that he must not be a recent convert. I would assume most of us here at Cornerstone are familiar with hearing the term elder. Many churches use different, and denominations use different terms for their leaders, such as pastor, overseer, bishop, etc., from my Southern Baptist uh, heritage, if you will, many people in, in Southern Baptists like to refer to the pastors as brother. Uh, hey, Brother Timothy. And I, I hated that. I hated that. <laughs> Please don't call me that. Oh, 
I won't get upset if you do. It just, just wasn't my thing. Some guys love it. I just, I don't know. I wasn't my thing. Moving on. Now, even though churches use different uh, ways to address the leaders of the church, such as an elder, overseer, pastor, brother, they use those to describe their leaders. These three titles, elder, overseer, and pastor, they're not three separate offices of the church. They are one office with multiple functions. So in other words, the Bible uses these titles, elder, overseer, and pastor, interchangeably, but it's to describe the functions of the same office. One office, three functions. In fact, even here in Titus 1, Paul uses the term elder, we saw in verse 5, appoint elders, but then when you look to verse 7, he uses overseer to describe part of the elder's ministry. He explains to Titus, look, an elder oversees the affairs of the church. And we have other passages in the New Testament where all three terms, our titles, are used to describe the same position as well. In Acts 20, 28, Paul assembles all the elders in the church of Ephesus to give them his farewell message. And then in verse 28 of Acts 20, he says to the elders, Keep watch over yourselves and all of the flock, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds, same word for pastor, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. So you see, Paul addresses the elders, reminds them that they are overseers over the church of God, and then tells them to keep watch over themselves and to shepherd or pastor those who Christ has redeemed. Furthermore, in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 2, Peter writes, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Here we go. Shepherd, pastor, the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. You see, so to the elders, or, or the, the term elder, overseer, and pastor, they're not multiple offices. They're not three offices. They're one office that has multiple functions. Why is this important to know? Because those who are appointed as elders by the local church, must have a clear understanding that their role is to shepherd the flock, to protect the flock, to make sure the flock is taken care of, feed the flock, and oversee the care, ministries, and vision of the local church. And in turn, the church must also have a proper understanding of their roles so that they don't confuse the primary ministries of an elder and also so that they don't appoint the wrong men to that office. Now, we're going to dig deeper into the qualifications of an elder when I return. For now, I thought it would just be beneficial to note Titus's job, his commissioning there, Paul, if you will. It's not to simply just appoint men who want to be superiors in the church of God. So he's, in other words, Titus... <laughs> Paul's not telling Titus to go hold a Wednesday night meeting in the local churches and say, okay, fellas, I, I just need a few of you who are interested in running things in the church and, and, and just telling everybody what to do. 
In fact, I think it would have been the exact opposite. Titus may have, maybe he did hold a Wednesday night meeting and said, now whoever wants to be the church's supervisors, if you will, raise your hand. I'm sure plenty of hands would have gone up by men there. And then Titus would have said, now that's great. Here's the job description. Being a leader in the local church means that you're a servant to everyone in the local church. Now, keep your hands up if you're still interested. You see, the, the point is that, that just any man won't do. And those who have the desire to be an elder without the necessary character would not only be a disaster for the church, but it would also be destructive for the individual man. And therefore, Paul gives Titus a criteria here that the appointed elders must meet. And if we were just to summarize them, they must be Christ-like men. Now, for those who aren't interested in ever serving as an elder, you don't get to escape those qualifications of just what a man of God or a Christian should be like. Every single man, no matter if you're an elder, deacon, or just saved this morning, we are to imitate. Christ our Lord. We should be Christ-like men so we don't get a pass. None of us. Loved ones, it is critically important to emphasize on the qualifications and for us to understand the importance of that because the saying is true, if a defect remains in the church, it is because there is defective leadership. And while I cannot judge the motives or know the motives for every man who wants to lead the church or be a superior, a desire to and a willingness alone does not fit the criteria. A church needing one, just needing elders and leaders. Necessity alone does not justify appointing unqualified men. And we have plenty of dysfunctional churches that bear witness to the reality, to that reality, who have appointed men that do not belong in those positions. Okay, let's rewind back to verse 5. Spend a moment examining the purpose for appointing elders. Point 3, God desires order in every local church. God desires order and everything. We're going to expand on that. Verse 5, Paul says, That's why I left you in Crete, Titus, so that you might put what remained into order. The purpose of Titus' ministry is to do what? It's to bring order in the local churches. And in order to do that, he's supposed to appoint elders to make that happen. Men who fit the criteria of the preceding verses. And that helps us understand one of the primary ministries of being an elder, right? Those who we appoint as elders in our church, they should build and establish order, maintain order, and if needed, to restore order. I, I, I know when, when, when people hear the term organized religion, they usually cringe some, some people really like disorganized religion. I'm sorry, some people really like 
dislike organized religion. And it is understandable by some of your experiences why you would dislike organized religion. But as I heard it so eloquently put by one of my previous pastors, organized religion isn't perfect, but it's better than unorganized religion. No matter how we feel about it, it is clear from the scriptures, from the New Testament, that God desires his churches to be orderly. And we, 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 here we learn something. And just in this small, just in this one verse, we learn something about the character of God. Because God's desire for orderliness in the local church is a direct reflection of who God is. It tells us, loved ones, that God is not a God of chaos. He is a God of creation, a God who is committed to order, purpose, beauty, and design. He is the grand architect of all things, and all things he does work together. There are no mistakes. God does not make a mistake. And there's not one inch or any part of creation that does not have purpose. If you ever hear my wife talk passionately about God being a God of beauty and a God of order, you will immediately want to clean your house. It happens every time. In fact, never in the history of men has a husband ever wanted to go wash the dishes so joyfully than after hearing that little devotion. It's convicting, but it's true. Because she points out, from God's creation, which is visible, that he is a God of order and a God of beauty and design and structure. And if we do what the psalmist says and consider thy works of thy hands in this purposeful design of his creation, we will be unequivocally convinced that chaos, mayhem, anarchy, disunity, disorder... And yes, I would argue even uncleanliness does not reflect the character of God. On the uncleanliness note, sometimes we have to give ourselves a little grace. But you get the point. God is not a God of chaos. He's not a God of mayhem. He's not a God of anarchy. He wants unity and order, not disunity and disorder. And yet... That's just God's creation. God's desire for order does not end with the cosmos. It expands into every single one of his designs, including institutions he has created. Did I? Oh, yeah. For instance, the nuclear family. God gave a mandated structure for the household. A husband is to lead. A wife is called to submit. And the children are commanded to obey their parents. God set design up for government. Yes, government. God desires order in every nation. And therefore he set rulers over nations in order to be his ministers who maintain its lawfulness and integrity. 
He desires order in the workplace. God sets perimeters on how a master should treat their servant or a boss should treat their employer and and how the employee should work for their master or work for their boss. And as we study the DNA of the church, and maybe last but not least, God desires order in every local church. And here's some other examples of that. First Timothy 3.15, Paul closes the chapter by saying, I'm writing these things to you, Timothy, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul's teaching about using spiritual gifts in corporate worship in the local church when gathered and concludes that thought in verse 40 by telling them all things should be done decently and in order. And in today's sermon, in today's passage, Paul says, appoint elders for that task, charge them to maintain order. That is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order, point elders. Loved ones, God doesn't desire the church to be robotic and just in, in, in some sort of uh, legalistic uniformity. The truths that God the Son became incarnate, took on flesh to live a sinless life, to go and die on the cross for sinners such as you and me, and then rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and chose, even before the creation of the earth and the foundation of the earth, as Paul says to Ephesus, chose to save us from our sin, save us from the wrath of God. That reality should cause affection in our heart. We're not robots. Now, one of my history professors said it best, well, he didn't say burn the books, but, but we'll just, you know, hyperbole. Burn the books by theologians who, who write, and you just read them, and you're just bored to death. Because when you read the Apostle Paul, whenever he's writing theology, it always leads to him worshiping God. And, and these truths of who God is and what God has done should not make us robots. But that doesn't mean that we should be people of disorder or Anarchy. The, the church of God cannot be a people who, who love chaos, who love to see that. We're called to be a people who love peacemaking, unity, structure. We should strive toward that goal. It's the goal of the elders to make sure that there's unity within the elders and within the church. And not just in the local church, but have you considered the alternative to peacemaking, unity, and order? I don't think you need to consider it. I think we have a pretty accurate picture of the alternative if we just simply gaze into our culture. If we peel back the onion, which I don't think we need to do very far, we can see how the rejection of God's objective truths regarding structure in the home, order and morality in the government, faithfulness to the word of God in the local church, the rejection of those objective truths that God has set.
for his church and society has led to an accepted ideology that truth can only be subjective. And the rejection of absolute truth has produced nothing but chaos in the heart of our society to which we are rapidly declining into utter despair. And what's behind all of it? What is the, what's, what is the problem? It's that it's the, the absolute rejection of orderliness and structure which God set as the standards of human flourishing. That is the issue. What God has mandated for humanity and society to flourish. Society has told God, we don't want it. We don't need organized religion. We don't need the Bible to be our authority. We just need to create a God in our own image that we can worship whatever we think he is like. We don't need traditional families. And you can forget about the father being the head of the family because we don't even believe you need a father to be a family. We don't need traditional families either where, where the kids are supposed to obey mom and dad. In fact, kids should be able to make their own choices without mom and dad even knowing. While we're at it, let's just completely throw out God's institution for marriage between a man and a woman altogether. I mean, let's, let's be realistic. We, we aren't even able to define as a society at this point what a woman is. We're evolving. Isn't it wonderful? Loved ones, when society removes God's instructions as the standard for establishing and maintaining order, they will inevitably end up in complete madness. Is it not so clear? So Paul tells Titus, this must be different for the people of God. You can't escape it. When Christ returns, he will right all wrongs. But for the people of God, for the local churches, establish order. And your first order in business in doing so is to appoint elders who are Christ-like men. On a lighter note transition elders is plural this is why i left you in crete so that you might put what remained in the order and appoint elders in every town as i directed you just look at verse five for a moment does paul say appoint an elder in every church no it's plural that is is important he says, appoint elders in every town. And whenever the New Testament talks about elders in a church, it's almost always in the plural form. More, more importantly, why should every local church have multiple elders? A plurality of elders, as we like to call it. Uh, is it one pastor enough? No. No, it's not. While that may work, for some churches, many churches are destined to failure because they put an unrealistic expectation on one single man. It should not be this way. 
Proverbs, the book of Proverbs helps us, helps us think out a plurality of leaders tremendously. 11.4, where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in the abundance of counselors, there is safety. Proverbs 15.22, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Proverbs 24.6, for by wise guidance, you can wage your war. And in an abundance of counselors, there is victory. There's wisdom in the counsel of many, as Scripture tells us. No, no man can nor should attempt to shepherd a church on his own. As an individual man, I have weaknesses and strengths. Other godly men will help support my weaknesses with their strengths. And I will support their weaknesses with my strengths. Together we can pray. Together we can study the word of God. Together we can seek to discern the mind of Christ from the scriptures. Together we can protect the flock. Together we can shepherd, feed the flock. And together we can unite the bride of Jesus Christ. Loved ones, don't give that task to one man. I don't think our church is in jeopardy of doing that. But we must remind ourselves what happens when churches do do that. New Testament churches appointed multiple elders, and therefore, so should we. That's why we came here. Because I knew I wouldn't be the only pastor. But it wasn't just because you had a plurality of elders. It's because you had a plurality of elders that you all trusted as Christ-like men. And their families followed suit. Finally, elders are appointed in every local church to remind every church member who is the head of the church. That's our question. Who is head of the church? Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The head of the church is the one who purchased the church with his blood. 
The head of the church is the one who created and sustains all things. The head of the church is the one that Paul says has supremacy over all rulers, dominions, and authorities. And Paul reminds the elders in Ephesus of that very thing in Acts 28, or sorry, in Acts 20, verse 28. Paul says, Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Paul looks at the elders and says, gentlemen, the local church does not belong to you. The church belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ who died for it, who laid down his life for it. Therefore, you better treat them as the bride who was purchased by the blood of the bridegroom. And if you want to be an elder, you better be willing to lay down your life for them, just as Jesus did. You know, the, who's the head of the church? The, the office of an elder, the task, the role, the ministry of the elder, the overseer, the pastor, is not to be lord over the church. To be an elder is to continually, faithfully, Remind the church who the Lord is and what he has done. That's our task. We point the church to the Lord of all creation and our Savior who forgave our sins by dying for them. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, Lord, I pray that we would continue to to seek your word, your New Testament, Lord, even even is 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 if being considered a healthy church or a healthy leadership, God, we would not turn from that. We would not become prideful. We we would not uh, give a a snare to Satan that we would allow ourselves, Lord, to to think that we're doing something so magnificently. But just bowing beneath your sovereignty and understanding that, that all things are done for you and through you, Lord. And what has been accomplished at Cornerstone and even other healthy churches across the world, Lord. It's a work like salvation. It's a work that has been done by you, Lord. And God, we acknowledge that and we pray that you would continue to keep that is one of the staples of Cornerstone. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.